You survived the holidays, the food comas, and even 2020. So for 2021, make sure your New Year's resolution is to argue like never before by arguing better. Allstate, along with the Aspen Institute and Facing History and Ourselves, created the Better Arguments Project, an initiative that teaches people the importance of constructive disagreements and how they can bring people together. Learn more at betterarguments.org. This is Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. In this year of crisis and struggle, the pandemic and systemic racism are forcing people to reflect on how to overcome multiple challenges. Women leaders have steered innovation and transformation in recent years. Former United States Secretary of State Madeleine K. Albright says all women must be heard and respected. We have to help push each other on this because nobody is perfect. And I think something that has to be said Women are more than half the population in every country. And by keeping women down and silent, with the only right to be silent, we weaken our countries and really deprive the people of a resource, the resource of women that are full partners in our countries and able to participate and deal with some of the issues head on. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations from the Aspen Institute. Today's conversation is from the Aspen Institute's SOAR Fellows Forum. Women's leadership style is associated with listening to others and working together to find solutions to make the world a better place. Secretary Albright and former Prime Minister of New Zealand, the Honorable Helen Clark, share their perspectives on the changing role of women's leadership and why women's leadership matters. Their conversation is led by the Aspen Institute's Peggy Clark, co-chair of the Aspen Forum on Women and Girls. Here's Peggy Clark. Madeline, could you give us some opening remarks in recognition of our Aspen Soar Fellows and on this moment that we're in right now? I'm delighted to be here with all of you to celebrate the first ever Women's Fellowship at the Aspen Institute. I have just met the inaugural class of Soar Fellows, and I have to say they are a truly inspiring group, and it makes me feel that our future is in very good hands. This is an especially meaningful moment for me because of my connection with the Aspen Institute, and it dates back almost to its founding more than 70 years ago. As some of you may know, after my family left Europe, my father took a job teaching international relations at the University of Denver. And during the summers, he was asked to come to Aspen to help lead seminars at the newly established Aspen Institute, and I got to tag along. And I've been coming back ever since, and I'm now honored to serve on the Aspen board and to work with the Institute in a variety of ways. And I couldn't be happier uh, than to lend my enthusiastic support to this new initiative. And, And this is an especially good time to launch this program because the world has never needed women in leadership roles as much as it does right now. So we are in the midst of a devastating global pandemic, which is disproportionately impacting the lives and livelihoods of women around the world. And the United States is also facing a moment of reckoning on systemic racism and injustice, and women of color are playing a crucial role in leading us toward a better and more equitable future. So a lot has changed, and there will be more to come. So let me make one thing clear. Decades ago, when I first began speaking out on the topic of women's empowerment, It was, it was customary to think of women as victims. We were supplicants 
asking the strong for sympathy and help. We were outsiders who had to be satisfied with tokens in the form of a single small seat at a very large table. We were told to be patient and to settle for progress one step at a time. And the only right we were really encouraged to exercise was the right to remain silent. We were also expected to find comfort in the role of victim, to be objects of pity without the responsibility to act. But my message today and the message of the SOAR Fellows is that women have finished with the role of victim. Women today are leaders, legislators, diplomats, warriors, peacemakers, professionals, aviators, athletes, artists, educators, and a million other things, but we are not victims. We have long since moved beyond the point when it might be said that so-and-so does something pretty well for a woman. The era of condescension has passed, and there's no better proof of that fact than what is happening in Washington right now. On January 20th, Kamala Harris will take the oath of office to become the first female vice president and the highest ranking woman in the history of the American government. The Biden-Harris administration has committed to elevating the status of women and their senior staff and cabinet announcement thus far, including the nomination of Janet Yellen to be Secretary of Treasury, reflect this reality. This is important because the coronavirus pandemic has reminded us of the importance of leadership on every level. It's no coincidence in my mind that the countries that have handled the pandemic the best are all headed by women, including Finland, Germany, Iceland, New Zealand, Norway, and Taiwan. Women leaders bring their whole understanding of the needs of families and communities, as well as a deep ability to forge relationships and partnerships that are grounded in the practical realities that we are facing. We also know from experience that women leaders can make a difference by raising issues that others ignore, calling attention to abuses that others overlook, and supporting investments that help countries to grow from the ground up. That is what our SOAR fellows have already done in their careers. And with the support of the Aspen Institute, I cannot wait to see the difference that they make to solving the great challenges of our time. So welcome to the Aspen community, and thank you so much for letting me be a part of this event, and I look forward to our discussions. Thank you, Peggy. Thank you so much, Madeline. Helen, let me turn to you for some opening remarks. Greetings, everyone. Following on from what Madeline said, women's leadership has really come to the fore in the COVID response. Now, widely commented on, why are these countries doing better? Hello, (laughs) women's leadership. I would also say that uh, where men have done okay in, in leading the pandemic, and some have, it's because they've tended to adopt the style and attributes that we often associate with women's leadership, which is more lateral, more consultative, actually listening, not so top down, more uh, collegial. And I also think it comes down to values. You know, what is the most important thing in life? There's a, a Maori proverb from New Zealand that answers that question by saying, it is people, it is people, it is people. And your first consideration in a crisis like this has to be not what's going to happen on Wall Street, 
but what is going to happen to people? It's all about people. Do people feel health secure? Are we protecting the elderly and the health vulnerable? Are we doing whatever we can to safeguard life? I might say that in New Zealand, where this was very much on display as the set of values, that health was being put first, that people warmed to that. They saw the empathy. They saw the clear communication about what was being done, why it was being done, inviting people to engage on a journey, not top-down leadership saying, you're going to do this because, but saying, we can't do it without you. We need the team of, and there's about 5 million of us, we need the team of 5 million working on this. So it, it's like a, a servant leadership style as well. But as Madeline has said, not unique to New Zealand. We look with admiration at the way Angela Merkel has led. And, and clearly it's a different matter to manage a pandemic in continental Europe with the railway lines running through. New Zealand has the advantage of having a rather large moat around it, you know, a thousand miles to the kingdom of Tonga, 1,100 miles to New Caledonia, 1,200 miles to Australia. Yes, we can seal ourselves off, but we have to make our luck. We made our luck. Angela Merkel has, has led with her uh, respect for science and, and the background that she has. Uh, four out of the five Scandinavian prime ministers are women that have done fantastically well, the, the leader of Taiwan. So I think the attributes associated with women's leadership were very positive and that where men also adopted that style of leadership, it would be good for everyone. I think COVID has really put that out there for everyone to see. We've been reflecting with the SOAR Fellows on this question of legacy. And I want to ask both of you, Madeline and Helen, at this moment of multiple crises, COVID raging, racial unrest, political instability, uh, challenges on all of those fronts, have you ever seen anything like this in your lifetime of political service? And, and what are your observations about this moment? Madeline, let me begin with you. I never have seen anything like this. I actually lived in England during World War II when there was bombing and people dying. But I was a little girl and uh, I was isolated and basically spent time in an air raid shelter. And a lot of people died during World War II. But this is unprecedented in the numbers that are out there and the rapidity of the spread. And frankly, the lack of information in terms of how this started and what is going on. And the fact that it actually requires cooperation. This is a virus that knows no borders. It doesn't differentiate between a developed and a developing country and where the country is. I mean, it's quite stunning. Uh, Helen, you did point out you're an island, but I do think that for the most part, the spread of this has been stunning. And we have not paid attention to the tools that could have been used earlier in order to stop this. There's a lot of blame going around, some of it which is legitimate, some of it which is not. It is putting stress on governmental structures and the form of government centralized versus, in the American case, our system of states. And it really is putting questions to leadership. What is leadership about? When do you take responsibility? What has it done to the economic system? We were talking about also its effect on violence against women any or on children that aren't able to go to school, what the effect of that is going to be. So I don't think we've even absorbed 
all the elements of this, but it, I've never seen anything like it. And it's going to have to be dealt with, uh, not by ignoring it, but by understanding and dealing with it and telling people the truth. Very well said. Helen. I agree with Madeline. Certainly never seen anything like it in my lifetime. And Madeline you know, gave the example of, of World War II and obviously horrific. World War II accompanied by genocide, just very, very tough times. If we go back to World War I, the end of World War I was also uh, the time of the great flu pandemic. And so you had war raging offshore from, say, New Zealand or, or the US, but at home the pandemic was doing its damage. That might be the closest parallel in a way. But there's so many lessons coming out of this experience. One is populism is a very bad thing to have around when you're trying to respond to a pandemic. There's a problem with populism in general, I think, which is that it comes up with simplistic so-called solutions, which end up making things worse. And I think we've seen that uh, in a number of places. Another sobering reality is that countries that you know, are assumed to have these very advanced health systems have in a number of cases done extremely badly. And here's an interesting point. Johns Hopkins, not so long before the pandemic, did a global ranking of the, the countries with the greatest resilience to pandemic, the greatest preparedness and health security. And they put the US and the UK at the top of the ranking. New Zealand was 35th. Now, I, I hope they're going back and looking at, at the indicators in that ranking because it, it, it's ludicrous. Nice. You compare mm. the response. But what we've seen is that those who were prepared to adapt whatever plans they had to this novel situation with the novel coronavirus have done quite well, but also those who've experienced in more recent times major infectious disease epidemics, whether that was Ebola in West Africa and, and Uganda, or whether it was SARS in East Southeast Asia. The memory of that has enabled also systems to get responses out relatively quickly once the scale of the problem is appreciated. In the West, we should be a little bit humble, really. 2020 is finally coming to an end. Grab the confetti. To celebrate, we're heading into a new year with a resolution that's all about practicing a new and improved way to argue. Allstate, along with the Aspen Institute and Facing History and Ourselves, created the Better Arguments Project, an initiative that teaches people arguing and discussion techniques that can actually help bring communities together. So start the new year off right using five simple practices that will strengthen your relationships in 2021. One, take winning off the table and instead focus on understanding other perspectives. Two, make listening a priority and see how quickly you form relationships. Three, embrace moments of vulnerability it helps to build trust with others. Four, pay attention to context. It can help you to understand differing points of view. And five, consciously change how you engage with others. Be open and respectful, and they will be too. Learn more at betterarguments.org. I wonder if you both would touch a little bit on the erosion of the role of the U.S. in the world right now as a result of this and what you're hoping for um, with a new administration. Madeline, can I start with you on that? Well, I have to say that I was stunned 
by the fact that the U.S. has been AWOL for quite a long time. Before we weren't able to travel, I had been to several conferences. For instance, the Munich Security Conference, where the Americans were a joke when Pompeo and Esper, the Secretary of Defense, came to speak uh, kind of uh, from another planet. Previous to that, I had been at a conference actually in Morocco that was about refugees. I had been invited by Louise Arbour, a Canadian, to be a speaker. And I look out at the audience and the American chairs are empty on an issue of major importance. And not only that, then all the AWOL part, whenever we did appear, what we did was malign other countries and yell at them and, and make it seem as if everything was a business transaction. I have been meeting virtually now with a lot of different audiences. And this morning I was talking to some Europeans. They want to know what is going to be different with Biden. And I think that we're going to see a big difference. I happen to know Joe Biden very well and Kamala Harris, but also that there is a different approach already and that it's going to be more listening, more partnership, not either deciding that we don't want anything to do with people or yelling at them. But, and I think this is a very big but, it is not going to be able magically to have things change. By the way, I just have to make clear, I, I'm not speaking for anybody in the upcoming Biden administration, but just in, in what I'm sensing is they are going to have to deal with the virus first. There is absolutely no question. And the domestic economic situation. And there will be questions about who our partners are. And we will have to see, we now know who the major national security cabinet members will be, but we don't know, you know, the State Department has been denuded. I mean, it's, it needs rebuilding and have to do diplomacy, you need diplomats. And so I think there will be listening and searching for partnerships, but unless the elections in Georgia bring us two Democratic senators, there is going to be, I think, gridlock. And unless the Republican senators kind of wake up and realize that their obligations are to the country and not to a party, much less to a leader who doesn't care about anybody but himself, I think that we can expect not miracles, but a lot of hard work that will be an attempt to bring America back into responsible leadership, but we're going to have to, we need time. Helen, any reflections from you on, from your perspective on the role of the U.S. in the world? I think the world's anticipating an engaged United States again, and that's good for the, the multilateral system. It's good for those who are, you know, fighting for rights and freedoms around the world. You think of some of the crises that have pretty much gone under, under the radar in the time of COVID like the struggle in Belarus for people to have the right to choose their leader without being brutally beaten and, and tortured for protesting about the result of an election. So, no, no the U.S. will be back, and, and, and that's very, very positive. I, I absolutely agree with Madeline that front and centre of the incoming administration's mind is going to be the COVID response because America has a disastrous epidemic and they have to try to get on top of that. And rolling out the vaccine will be challenging. Keeping the public health measures going at the same time when you've got populations probably pretty fed up with the whole thing. There's also an international aspect to the pandemic response, and that is how we try to ensure a more equitable access to the vaccine, because there is a concern that we in the 
more enabled countries will look after ourselves in the course of next year with the vaccine and then say, oh, well, that was then and, and move on. And meantime, there'll be billions of people out there who haven't had the access. So we need a, an internationally minded uh, US to be part of the global response that's equitable as well. Absolutely, Helen, and we know you sit on a number of commissions related to that. Let me move to the last question and going back to women's rights. Um, this year marks the 100th anniversary of women uh, gaining the right to vote in the U.S. And this year we also celebrated the 25th anniversary of the very important Beijing Conference um, on Women's Rights. So what do you think are the most critical issues facing women in the world today? And what should political leaders prioritize? I think, firstly, economic independence and empowerment, the ability to have that power and control over your life. There's still an extraordinary number of countries. I think even as recently as a couple of years ago, the World Bank was documenting over 150 countries that still had some sort of law that impacted on women's economic inequality. This is, this is not good enough. Secondly, violence against women is a global scourge. We're not going to be able to stand tall and confident as long as sexual and gender-based violence blights the lives of so many women. Third, thirdly, access to sexual and reproductive health and rights. The whole range is fundamental. And then the, the role of women in decision-making. We ain't there yet. You know, Some countries closer than others to to parity and inclusion, but uh, others with a long way to go. So those would be my big four. They definitely are the right ones. And, and I think that it's going to require cooperation among all of us with some help from men. But I was at the Beijing Women's Conference. One of the issues there was that there were national plans that countries were going to live up to following up on some of the promises and subjects that they were raised at the 25th in Beijing. And I think that in some ways, we have to help push each other on this because nobody is perfect. Certainly the United States is not. And I think that something that sounds utilitarian, but is something I think that has to be said, women are more than half the population in every country. And by keeping women down and silent with the only right to be silent, I think that we weaken our countries and really deprive the people of a resource, the resource of women that are full partners in our countries and able to participate and deal with some of the issues head on, recognize that I think women, as a result of our role, are very good at multitasking, that we have peripheral vision and are able and are problem solvers. But we need to, depending on the anger that is out there, try to figure out how to explain why our role is good for everybody, not just for women. It is good for everybody. We are a good resource. We want to participate. And I think the kind of program now, Peggy, that you've put together, I loved meeting the SOAR fellows who are all kind of frontline on organizations that are working to make sure that women are not only heard, but that women can contribute, that women are elected, that women are respected, and that we want to be equal partners. Beautiful. Thank you both, Honorable Helen Clark and Secretary Albright, for your strength, for your persistence, for being a beacon for so many of us, and for keeping up the good fight. And we thank you so much for being with us today. 
Madeleine K. Albright became the first female U.S. Secretary of State in 1997, and at the time, the highest-ranking woman in the history of the U.S. government. She received the nation's highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, served on the National Security Council, and represented the U.S. at the United Nations. Former three-term Prime Minister of New Zealand, the Honorable Helen Clark was the first woman to lead the United Nations Development Program and is the chair of the Independent Commission on Pandemic Preparedness. The Aspen Institute's Peggy Clark co-chairs the Aspen Forum on Women and Girls. This conversation was recorded in early December as part of the SOAR Fellows Program. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show is produced by Shauna Lewis. It was programmed by the Aspen Institute's Forum on Women and Girls. Our theme music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Arguing is so last year. Now that it's almost 2021, it's time to start having better arguments. The kind where you get to voice your opinion, other people voice theirs, and constructive conversation ensues. That's why Allstate, along with the Aspen Institute and Facing History and Ourselves, created the Better Arguments Project, an initiative that teaches people the importance of constructive disagreements and how they can help bring communities together. Learn more at betterarguments.org.